1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29 is where we will uh, pick up. He says, Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead here, the resurrection of the actual, uh, of the, of the actual, of, of dead, uh, of the dead. Uh, differentiate that later on. He's going to talk about the resurrection of the body and how that, how that uh, actually works. But he's been, uh, in chapter 15, he's been speaking to those people or to the idea that there is no resurrection. There can't be a resurrection. It's impossible. Uh, physically, it's impossible. And so uh, Paul began at the beginning of the, uh, of the passage by declaring what the gospel is. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And that's very important, that resurrection part, because without it, he's just like everybody else. Everybody's dies. Uh, and every world leader, or every, I'm sorry, every religion leader has died or will die. So the fact that Jesus died, and the fact even that he died on a cross, doesn't really do a whole lot. But the fact that he resurrected culminates and puts all of those pieces together and makes, uh, makes him very different than everybody else. So uh, what Paul does then is he begins to go through the, uh, the gospel. But in chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 12, uh, what I... I started the outline some uh, week or so, well, probably a month ago now. And uh, verses 12 through 28 talk about the consequences of denying the resurrection. And we spent, I think, two weeks talking about that. The consequences of denying a resurrection are that we have, or if there were no resurrection, if you're going to follow that out all completely, then the consequences are that we have an empty religion. This is everything we're doing here is for nothing. And we have, we have an empty life living a Christian life, verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. There's nothing to live for. Why are we doing this? Um, you know, if, why am I giving my money to a church if, if there's no afterlife? Uh, why not just save up and go to the Bahamas? Uh, why am I uh, why am I here on a Sunday night if this is if none of this is real? Why am I uh, doing all the things that, that a Christian does if none of this is real and the one big thing that makes it all worth it is the resurrection. If there wasn't a resurrection, we're talking about a, a dead man who never did anything after he was killed. What's the point of the rest of it? And so Paul is, is trying to reason with them by explaining to them that this is this is all worthless if there is no resurrection. Then in verse twenty, he talks about the first fruits, and that was the last time that we were together. That was a while back. And uh, we, we looked in, the, in this chapter and uh, explaining how Christ, being the first fruits of the dead, is a, a uh, is the fulfillment of the symbolic feast of first fruits that the, it, within the Jewish uh, uh, rituals and, and traditions. They they were commanded to uh, keep the feast of the first fruits, which is a part of uh, their feastly uh, calendar, if you will, but really is the uh, is the gospel played out in their holidays. So then tonight, we are going to look at two of the, the next parts of it. I've given you the same outline, actually, for a, lo- a couple of weeks now. So tonight, we're, not, uh, we're moving on from the consequences of denying the resurrection, and we look at the foolish, I'm sorry, the, the, yes, the foolishness of denying the resurrection, and then the dangers of denying the resurrection. So let's begin in verse 29, and Paul is saying, Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth, what advantageth it me, this old, old English words, advantageth it me 
If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And so in this passage, we see the foolishness of the de- denying the resurrection as well as the dangers. The foolishness here, Paul asks them two uh, questions, if you will, or two rhetorical questions, uh, questions that need no reply because in asking them, it just kind of shows the ridiculousness of it. The first question he asks in verse number 29, he says, uh, what are those, I'm going to paraphrase, what are those who, bap- who get baptized for the dead, why do they do it if there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, he's not teaching here about baptism for the dead. I think it's uh, is it the Mormons that baptize uh, for the dead, or I can't remember exactly who does it, uh, but uh, if, you, if you die, uh, then uh, someone else who's still alive can get baptized for you, and uh, that's your, kind of your last chance. It pulls you out of purgatory or wherever you are. Uh, but and Paul's not teaching here a new doctrine here. He's not teaching that we need to start getting baptized for dead people. But what he's pointing to is a, is a more general belief in an afterlife. He's, he's not saying within our culture, within our church, or within our belief system, why do we get baptized for the dead? He's saying if there's no afterlife, why do people get baptized for the dead? They're not even Christians, and they, and they believe in an afterlife. He has, uh, and, and so he's, he, he tries to bring them along this, this uh, logical reasoning to support the resurrection. If you believe there's no resurrection, then why do people get baptized for the dead? It doesn't do anything for them. Again, alluding to a general belief of life after death that extends outside of Christianity. His second question is in verse 30. He says, And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Uh, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me? If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's asking the question, why is my life constantly in danger for spreading this teaching if it's not true? Think back uh, to all of your Bible knowledge of Paul's life. Uh, Paul was in danger several times throughout his ministry simply because he preached the gospel. You think about it, I mean, Christianity should not be, if, it, if we take out, you know, what God told us what we would have to expect about Christianity. Christianity should be the most well-received religion there is. Uh, if we look at true Bible Christianity, it preaches love. It preaches uh, forgiveness. It preaches uh, hope. Uh, there, there, is no, there is no violence to it. There's no, I know that people have you know, killed in the name of Christianity and all that. I'm not talking about all that. I'm just looking at what the, what the gospel actually is. Uh, it, would make sense if a person walks out into a brand new town and starts preaching about this they should be well received not run out of town but every time we read about it in the bible and we study our history books uh, christianity has been persecuted and paul was no exception to that paul is uh, paul is uh, left for dead once they, they stoned him uh, he was uh, shipwrecked he was uh, arrested he was eventually executed for his christian preaching for his preaching about the resurrection and paul is saying if this isn't true, why am I doing this? Why am I risking my life if this is all a big joke? He says, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Kind of alluding to the fact that he lives in constant danger. It's not like, well, you know, I've had a couple of places in my life where it, things got pretty hairy. He's saying every day, every hour, I am living in danger. Uh, think about a story in Acts once uh, Paul had to be lowered. Um, I, I have a really tough time Im- imagining this because my my um, what the, the the Bible uses for terms 
I conjure up different images, but, you know, I remember they said Paul uh, was lowered from the wall in a basket. You know, I'm thinking of like a little Easter basket, and here's Paul. I'm like, how did that hold? You know, why not just use a rope? But anyways, they probably had something else going on. But, you know, why did he do that? Because he was a preacher of the gospel. In fact, Paul had a lot of friends before he became a preacher of the gospel. Paul was more violent before he became a preacher of the gospel, and yet he had no opposition. And then after he converts and becomes a preacher and becomes Jesus' most vocal uh, fan, if you will, of the, of the New Testament, that's when all the stuff starts happening to him. That's when people try to kill him and people try to shut him up because uh, he's, he's preaching something new. And so Paul is asking the question, again, rhetorically, why would I do this if it wasn't true? He says, and he says at the end of verse 30 there, I die, uh, verse 31, I die daily living in constant danger because of what he taught. Put another verse there if you want to look in 2 Corinthians 11. He mentions the same thing. In verse 32, he says something kind of, kind of curious here. If after the manner of man I fought with the beasts at Ephesus, what advantage of the means? He's talking about fighting these beasts. Now, whether or not he actually fought with lions and tigers and bears in the Colosseum and whatnot, um, I don't necessarily think that's what he did. And a lot of people uh, that would explain this, uh, this passage would agree. And I agree with them. I guess they don't agree with me. But the, what he's, he's, I believe he's using some imagery to describe uh, savage peoples who would have treated him this way. If you want to look in Titus chapter 2, we'll look in, uh, we'll look in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, because it's right there, but Titus 2, 12 says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9 uh, is not the passage I was thinking of here. Oh, oh, yes, it is. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. That's that, the part I wanted to point out, the adversaries there. Paul had a lot of adversaries. I will take you to Titus, since that's what I was thinking. I was thinking to in 16.9. Got my verses mixed up. Titus chapter 2, please, and verse 12. Titus 2 and verse 12. It says, uh, teaching us, uh, we'll back up, for the grace of God, verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, uh, that's not the right verse either. 112? Yes, it's 112. I don't know how to type. Titus 112. Uh, it says, uh, One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. So he's writing in a letter to Titus describing these people from Crete, and he's quoting someone else who called them evil beasts. And so uh, this is kind of where I'm thinking that Paul is, is speaking of these types of people uh, with this imagery to have us understand the savage. Uh, nature of these people, people that would... Uh, you remember when Stephen uh, preached uh, right in the book of Acts and the people got so convicted they bit him? I mean, I thought we got past that when we left the nursery stage. But the, here's, a, here's grown people. They don't like something that you said, so they jump on you and bite you. And not just one or two people, but the whole group is biting you. It's like, uh, this is... I don't even know if I want to stay here. If, you know, this, this may not be the greatest place to build a church. This is what they do when they don't like something you said. They bite you. Uh, when I was, uh, I don't know why I, I thought of this. I had a friend, I have a friend uh, uh, that I grew up with, with my, one of my better friends. We were, we were about 12. After I tell you the story, it makes me wonder why he was one of my better friends. But we're, we're, uh, we were walking down the church. The church's driveway was a giant hill. It was a huge hill. And we were walking down the driveway and then going up, up the hill. And we're just, we're chatting. We're not talking about anything. All of a sudden, he just turns. I had a short sleeve shirt on. 
and he just turns and he grabs my bicep and bites me. I have no idea why he did it, but he did. He left a huge bruise on my arm. I'm like, what was that for? And I said it a little bit more passionately than I said now. He just bit me. Like, what, what is that? And, and he didn't really give me a good answer. He just, he just bit me. I thought, that's, that's like, that's really weird. Why would you do that? And, and I don't even say anything bad. And Stephen here is bit. That's, that's how I imagine the savage nature that these people have when Paul would speak to them. Like, we don't like what you said. We're going to kill you. You know, and think about, and we can see it even in our day and age, you know, people don't like what something happens and they, you know, my basketball team lost in the, in the, in the championship. I'm going to go out and burn a car. You know, I just didn't, I didn't like what happened, so I'm going to just destroy things. I'm going to kill people. I, I didn't like what you said to me at the football game, so I'm going to punch you in the face and, and put you in the hospital. And it's crazy how we respond so, so immaturely, and yet Paul is speaking, and I believe speaking with some people here, but what Paul is saying there. He says, if after the manner of men, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. I mean, I put up with some really nasty people. And if you believe that he's talking about animals, and it just makes it even that much more outrageous, the point he's trying to draw, if there is no resurrection, why am I dealing with this? Paul was a very educated man. He could have, he could have done very well in the secular vocation, and we see that he did prior to becoming a Christian. And Paul's saying, I'm in the wrong but I'm in the wrong business if this is not true. I need to go sell insurance or do something that's going to make me a, a whole bunch of money because um, if I'm good enough talker to convince people into this big lie and I'm going to die for it, I'm going to back out and start selling cars. You ever notice that when preachers uh, leave church, generally they become used car salesmen. Does that has that happened like here out east? I know out in the northwest it happened. You stop you stop preaching, you sell because you can talk people into stuff, you know. And then I guess that's that's what I do. So in you know, Pastor Sears, yeah, if you know things get a little boring, you can go down to go down to Corey or whatever and talk people into it. Or maybe you, we just like to talk and 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 you kind of get you know when you walk on a car dealership lot and then they like they're coming like back away, don't make eye contact, run away. But uh, anyways, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, why would I deal with this with these people if if it's not true? And so he's trying to use the the logic there and what it, what we're calling the foolishness of the of the of denying the resurrection. But what he's saying there then is instead following this logic, he says at the very end of the verse there, uh, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Following the logic, okay, if there is no resurrection. That means that Christianity is a hoax, a fraud, a scam. Let's just live it up because really this is all there is. And in fact, he's not just making some wild assumption. This is what people are actually doing. Because we get down to the next pas- or the next part of the passage here. And he says, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. I don't think Paul's just thinking of something like, okay, let's just eat, drink, marry, because tomorrow we die. He's actually highlighting what he's seeing in the church, what he's seeing in people who believe there is no resurrection, then what's the obvious choice then? Do what you want to do. If there is no resurrection, there's no, there's no understand, there's no judgment for my actions. If there's no resurrection, that means that I don't have to answer for anything I've done in this life. So let's just live it up. Let's just do what we want to do. Paul actually is quoting from a, uh, a very popular Greek poet named uh, Menander. Uh, but in his in his phrasing here, bad company destroys good behavior. That's what he's saying there. Evil com- evil communications corrupt good manners. The word communications there, not just talking about simple bad conversations, saying you know having a potty mouth or or saying bad words, but rather it's the it's the bad associations. It's the bad company. And Paul says here that 
uh, and he's and he's quoting a secular, uh, if you want to call it a secular author. He's saying that evil company or bad communications, bad associations, will destroy or corrupt good manners or good behavior. And so uh, he he is pretty much just revealing to them what has already happened uh, to many of them who have followed that train of thought uh, into practice. Uh, not more than just entertain the thought they've actually bought into it. Yeah, there's no resurrection. And it makes a lot of sense. Think about it. If there is no resurrection, if, if we could, you know, all of a sudden find out right now, right here, right now, uh, God comes down, audible voice from heaven, whatever, and God says, hey, you guys have had it all wrong. This is all there is. There's no heaven. There's no hell. Would, would we still want to meet next Sunday? I mean, why? There's nothing else after this. Uh, Let's make sure we're faithful in giving to the church. Why? What's, what's, what are we doing? You know, so that's, that would, that would kind of change then what you did on Sunday. But it would also change the way, if you're living a good Christian life, it would change the way you live your life. Because if we're living the way that Christians are supposed to live, as I said this morning, everything I do is run through the filter of Jesus. It's run through the filter of pleasing Christ. And if he's still dead then I don't care what pleases him. He's not around to know what I'm doing anyways. And so I can do what I want to do. And I can, I can live however I like. And it's going to totally change how I live my life right now. Because I'm the, I'm the, the king of my own life. I, I do what I want to do. And if, if I can get away with it, I'm going to do it. Because uh, there's, there's no one to answer uh, for uh, I don't have to. There's no one to answer to for my actions. He says there because if there's not life after death, there is no judgment, and therefore no one to answer for how I live. And this becomes the philosophy that guides me through my life. If I if I if there is no resurrection, or if I believe there is no resurrection, do whatever you want. If it feels good, do it. Follow your heart, and don't judge me, because who are you to judge me? There there is no judge. You know, not even the phrase "only God can judge me" applies. I I judge me, and you, who are you to judge me? I'm gonna do whatever I want because there is no moral code, there is no there is no right or wrong anymore. It's, as in the book of Judges, I do what I I do what's right in my own eyes. I if I if you feel it's good, go ahead. And we have this Burger King type of lifestyle. Have it your way. Whatever you want feels good. Do it. If it doesn't, don't. If there is no resurrection, that's what Paul is is bringing them to because and this is the danger of it is we see here infected behavior we see infected behavior turns to indifference to righteousness which turns to an ignorance of god so we see the infected behavior in the in the verse there that says that evil communications corrupt good manners which turns into an indifference to righteousness he says that in verse 34 awake to righteousness awake to righteousness and sin not it's like you've, you've fallen asleep to this, and Paul is saying, wake up. You, have, you, have the, you who have believed, bought into the lie that there is no resurrection have begun to think, well, if there isn't a resurrection, then I shouldn't be doing I, There's no point in doing this. So you've kind of fallen asleep to doing the right things that Christians are supposed to be doing. Uh, if you Hold your place here just for a moment. Let's go to Romans chapter 13 and verse 11. Romans chapter 13, Paul, again speaking here, or writing, but to a different group of people. Romans 13, 11, and uh, we'll read through verse number 14. Paul says, And that knowing the time, 
that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. He's got the same message to another group of people here. It's, and backing up to verse 11 again, it is high time to wake out of sleep. I mean, the world is getting worse and worse and worse. The, he says our salvation is nearer than when we believed. And folks, he hasn't come back yet, so it's, it's even nearer now than it was when it was penned. And if the Lord tarries, he'll, it'll, it'll just be even closer and even more imminent. And Paul is saying because we recognize how near the Lord's return is, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, he says, let's cast off the works of darkness. Let's, let's get rid of our unrighteousness. Let's get rid of our worldly uh, behavior. And he says, and let's put on the armor of light. He says, let's walk honestly as in the day. And then later on in the last, in the last part of verse, uh, in the last part of the chapter there, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh. So Paul is, is trying to shake a Christian up and saying, hey, this is real. There is the resurrection. And he's already proven that. He's going to spend the rest of the chapter talking about this and really trying to slap the, slap the people and slap some sense into the people that haven't totally bought into the lie. Yes, there is a resurrection. Yes, there is an, a, 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 a reckoning. There is something after this. And you will answer for what you've done, saved or not. You will answer for the things that you've done in this life. And Paul is, is, is I think, earnestly trying to, to grab their attention here and say, wake up. This is, this is real. This is, this, is, this is not just something that we do. It's not just part of my life. It's, it is life. This is everything, and it affects everything. This one, if we want to call it an area of your life, your faith, affects every other part of your life. You can't isolate your faith. If you do, you got a weird faith. You can't box it up and say, well, you know, that's my Christian part of my life. But there's so many more parts to my life. No, if, it's, if what you got is real, it's going to affect everything else. And Paul is saying, wake up. Wake, awake to righteousness and sin not. That's that indifference there. I don't care. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Just do what you want to do. Hey, sirrah, sirrah. Do what's right. Do what's right in your own eyes. Paul says you become indifferent to holiness and to righteous living, and you have somewhat of an I don't care attitude. And Paul says it's time to shake that off and recognize the seriousness of the situation and straighten up. Because what happens, and probably the most tragic of, of these steps, is the last one then, because indifference to righteousness leads to an ignorance of God. This I don't care attitude towards righteousness leads to an ignorance of the truth. He says that in, the, in verse 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not. Why? For some have not the knowledge of God. Now, in, in studying this, I, I conjured up two images of people he might be talking about. He's talking about themselves, them, the, the, that group of people, or he's talking about the people around them. We, we can take each one and, and look at each one of them there. Um, is he talking about them, them the church? If he's talking about you, saying, some of you don't have the knowledge of God. He's saying, your, your behavior, your, your bad thinking has changed your behavior, which has then changed 
your understanding or what he calls the knowledge of God has changed what you understand about God. Because you feel that God is some old man upstairs that you'll never have to answer to and he's too old and he's too old and uh, 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 he can't get out of his rocking chair to come down here and do anything about the way you're living. So just do what you want to do because as long as you stay quiet enough, he won't hear and you won't wake him up or just don't get him too mad. Uh, and then just do what you want to do. And, as, and but, you know, if something bad happens because you probably went overboard, you have this weird understanding of who God is. And, or he's talking about the other people around you. Not, my behavior affects more than just me. My behavior affects my children. My behavior affects the people in whom I come in contact with. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the unbelievers, that, 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 the unchurched crowd, if you want to call them. Uh, if I change my, my uh, behavior, which leads to my indifferent attitude towards righteousness, what, is that, what kind of message does that send about God to other people? What does that tell people about the God that I so-called serve? If the God I serve doesn't really care what I do, what is that sending to the other people about, about Him? Could this be the succeeding generations within the church? It could be unbelievers uh, whom the church of God is supposed to influence. There's an important phrase here. Improper behavior of Christians misrepresents God to the world. Improper behavior from Christians misrepresents God out there. You know, if, if, the, if, the, if the church doesn't behave like they're supposed to, they're sending a message to the world. Whatever it may be. If the church is full of gossipers, or if the church is full of whiners or complainers or backbiters, or if, if, if what's the church's uh, reputation in the world? It depends on where you go, and each church, you know, each physical location of a church probably has a different reputation. But think about what's the overall reputation of the church to most most unchurched people out there. You know, some people are, well, you know, they're, they're, it's just a, a closed little club. I'm not, you have to be really good. Or it's just a bunch of hypocrites there. We've all heard different phrasings of what people use. Say, they try to lump everybody under one, um, uh, you know, under one banner of hypocrisy or Pharisees or, or whatever it may be. But I wonder if we would get down on a much, local, much more local scale, what does this community think of this body of belief? And ought to, you got to concern us. We ought to be very sensitive to what they think. Uh, they, they, ought to, they ought to know that we stand for something, but we do it as, as the sign says, and I think every, uh, you know, you see it everywhere, speaking the truth in law. You don't compromise one for the other. And so that's what, that's what uh, Paul is trying to, to get them to understand. The most, consequ- uh, the most uh, grave consequence of this behavior is that it leads to an ignorance of God. It says that we believe in a God who doesn't care how we live, and he either can't or won't do anything about it. And Paul says that that should bring shame to us. Now, very quickly, let me just, not very quickly, but let's just go through the takeaways uh, that, that come from this, this, uh, this little passage right here. Number one, it matters who influences you. Go back to verse uh, 33, evil communications corrupt good manners. It really does matter who influences you. And everybody around you has an influence. Okay? Okay. Uh, has anybody ever spent considerable amount of time in the South? I'm not talking about Florida, but I'm talking about like, hey, y'all, that South. Anybody ever spent time down there? No? Okay. Georgia has. Georgia's like everywhere, though. Uh, if you've ever gone down there for a, a good amount of time and then you come back, 
you probably get accused of speaking like a Southerner, right? I mean, she's shaking her head. Uh, my dad is from Tennessee, does not sound like an, uh, a Southern guy, but as soon as he goes down there on vacation and comes back, they're like, whoa, what happened to you? Yeah, I notice it. I'm not from the South. I lived like, I was born in the South, and then I lived in, you know, everywhere else but the South for most of my life, except like two years. And I wasn't talking in those two years. I was a, I was a newborn. But as soon as I get down there, my speech starts to slow down a little bit, start to get a little bit more drawn out in what I do. I, I, I used to uh, work with a lot of Hispanics in uh, Chicago. Guess how I started talking when I'd get around them. I, I, would, I would just pick up some of their, their friends. I hung out with a, with a Puerto Rican family, and they were like my home away from home. And, and I, I took on some, some, some uh, personality uh, qualities, if you will because I just hung out with them all of the time. I started eating a whole lot of rice and beans. I started, uh, I started uh, doing that. I went to a baby shower. And I was like, baby shower? And he said, well, in our call, sir, uh, the men go to baby showers. I was like, I don't know. And he said, well, there'll be food. I said, all right, I'll be there. And, uh, the, you know, I, I, I just started changing a little bit of who I was because of the people that I started hanging around. Uh, hey, I picked up a couple of northern, uh, uh, the east, northeast qualities. You know, I told you last week. Uh, I'm already irritated. If there's like three other cars on the road with me, I, I'm tired of that. I'm, 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 I don't want that. I want to see absolutely nothing in front of me. Rush hour. What's that? You know, we're going, we're planning on a, a trip to Washington next year and go back and see family for a, a, a couple of days. And I'm like, oh man, what about, what about the traffic? You know, like what, what's going to happen when we get out there and, and it's going to, there's going to be people and, and you know, all, I'm, I'm, I'm already used to small town and I kind of like it. Uh, the, but we, we pick up, the influences from the people we hang around. And no doubt, uh, you influence other people and other people influence you. Uh, ladies, I uh, imagine some of you uh, follow football simply because your husband does. And I mean, you don't care, but you, you kind of have, if you want to have a decent conversation with him, you got to speak his language. And so you, you have a little bit there. Uh, or it could be uh, the other way around, or it could be uh, guys, you know, you, 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 you watch those chick flicks uh, and you wouldn't have done it on your own, or at least you shouldn't be. But uh, you know, no man watches Downton Abbey on his own. But, uh, you know, the, he does because she does. And, and you, you influence. My wife and I have rubbed off on each other. Uh, and, and she's uh, made me a better person. And, and I couldn't make her any better. You know, she was, she's already perfect. So, all right, hoping, for a, hoping to get a point there. But uh, it matters who influences you. And so because it matters who influences me, um, we need to make sure that we choose the right influence. Now, it doesn't mean that I need to isolate myself from the world, like, you know, the world out there uh, that isolate. And, and sometimes people will do that. Christians will do that and isolate. Now, when I have anything to do with the outside world, I only take my car to Christian auto mechanics and I only shop at, at uh, Christian grocery stores. And all that. You, you can't isolate. We heard the phrase, there's no impact without contact. But it does mean that we must be on guard and purposefully put ourselves more often in the company of the good influences. Think of Jesus, the greatest example, right? Most of, and Jesus took a lot of flack for it in his personal ministry, but uh, Jesus was a, hung around a pretty shady crowd. And he, he, got, he got called out for it several times, but he was with thieves and publicans and prostitutes and, and all of these people. But he was there to be an influence, not to be influenced. He was there to help them. But as often or more as we see Jesus with this crowd, you know who else we see him in the company of? His Heavenly Father. How many times do we read about he spent all night in prayer? 
and he was talking to his father. And he, so there was there was a there was a and he's God. He has a, a bit of an advantage over us that uh, he's sinless. But but there was a, a constant um, making sure I'm with the good crowd. I'm with the good uh, influence uh, so that when I'm with the others, I can be an influence to them. Number two, and uh, this comes from uh, the, the verse 34 there. Unholy or unrighteousness, unrighteous behavior leads to an ignorance of God. And this is not just me. This is not just ourselves, but it's others also. Think, uh, think of Abraham's story. Uh, Abraham was the righteous influence in the home. He had Lot, right, his nephew. Lot moves away. And we see a very uh, steep decline in Lot's family, all uh, culminating in the end of incest with uh, his daughter. Why? Well, it's hard to put one finger on the one problem in his life, but I can tell you that there was an absence of spiritual things in his home because Abraham was the big influence. And your behavior, Lot's behavior, you read through Genesis and you read what Lot, how Lot slowly changed and slowly changed and slowly changed until he's down in the, he's down at the, at the bottom, uh, and all kinds of problems in his life. When Christians become indifferent to righteousness or to holiness, their behavior degrades and others as well. The more behavior degrades, the more distorted our views of God become and our views of right. It distorts our understanding of who God is and what is acceptable. Likewise, the less that we know of God, the worse our behavior is because everything we know about righteousness is because of God. We're not for God. We wouldn't know what righteousness is. He is righteousness. And so the, the less we know about God, the less we know about righteousness. The more we know about God, the more we learn of righteousness. Therefore, the less people know of God, they know the less they know about righteousness. Look at the correlation today in our world at the perception of who God is and the acceptance of God and then just the, the general lifestyle of the world. You know, we talk about the good old days, the 50s and the 60s, you know, and it seemed like everybody was a Christian and everybody went to church and all that. And I know that there's another side to that, but uh, in general, the world was a lot more uh, God-fearing 50, 60 years ago than it was than it is today. Crime has shifted as well. It's the same way. Uh, we're dealing with all kind of different problems that were never an issue 50, 60 years ago when people had a little bit different uh, perception of God. People had, there was prayer in the public schools. And I know that's not the one thing that damned America to hell or anything, but I'm saying that there's a a, a big correlation to how we look at God and our understanding of who God is. Go back 200 years ago. People had a very reverent, attitude when it came to God, right? And look at the way that he's referred to now. Look at the way that as a whole, as a country, America views God. And look at the problems that we deal with that we didn't deal with back then. And so, uh, because of our because because Romans 3 tells us that we're not righteous on our own. And so we need God to teach us, to show us what righteousness is, what the standard is. And let me just finish with this. This is why Christians are called salt and light in the world. Matthew 5, verse 13, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. He says, you're the light of the world. Now, if, and this is still under uh, understanding my behavior. If my behavior as a Christian is not what it should be, that means that my light is not shining. I'm not shining as a light of the world. And Jesus said there that if the light on the city on a hill that cannot be hid, he says, but if you're 
If you hide it under a bushel, what's going to happen? Well, the people that are in the dark aren't going to get any help. They're not going to get any closer. And if Christians don't shine that light, then those who are in darkness simply continue in it. And so it really matters who influences us, but also uh, we need to remember and live in a constant awareness that my behavior uh, affects not just me, affects other people. Now, he gets into this what this next real big category here of the resurrection of the body, and he uses some, some planting terms and, and some things like that. And so we're going to pick up uh, some steam as we uh, get through this next.